Tough times, tough exams demand tough measures. The only time that I can ever recall having broken into a building, that's right, was uh, during an exam week at Virginia Tech. It was in connection with a very difficult exam that I had coming up. You need to understand that this economics exam that I was facing, the final grade was based on two scores, your midterm and your final. So you better hit it over the fence on at least one, if not both, of those exams. So I'm thinking to myself, given the stakes involved, uh, yeah, I can go study in the library, but it's distracting. My roommate, he just is too, too loud. I need focus. I need a place to spread out. I need quiet. So why bother with a library if I can get a classroom? So I've found a window in Williams Hall that was uh, just outside the, the range of the, the, uh, the, the lights in the sidewalk or near the sidewalks and the buildings and such. I pushed said, I tested it earlier in the day, by the way. I knew it was going to be open. Or maybe I opened it, come to think of it. Anyway, so I, uh, I pushed said window open, crawled in, made my way upstairs, settled in for the next several hours. Now, a disclaimer. I am not advocating this. I'm not endorsing this. I'm not encouraging this. I'm simply making a point. Tough times, tough exams demand tough measures. Well, Jesus would have us to recognize that there are far greater things that we need to be prepared for than just some exam. His return, his coming, for which we need to be ready and be prepared. And he has spoken to that quite a bit in this chunk of passages that we have been in over the last several weeks, and he is pressing in at least as hard, if not harder, in where we are here this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, this is the first of the four Gospels, first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in Matthew 25, roughly halfway through what's oftentimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 25, starting in verse 1, reading on through verse 13. Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. Hear now God's word. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Lord, we need to hear this. Uh, clearly this was a theme. You were pressing strongly upon your hearers there on that occasion. We've heard, we've seen this already 
uh, in the stretch of these passages that we have been looking at these last few weeks, and clearly it was a priority to you, and it needs to be a priority to us. We ask that you would help us in that. Uh, no doubt some other priorities need to be dislodged in order for this to be made a higher one. So we ask that you do that. Uh, we ask that truly, uh, truly you would give us ears with which to hear. Please give us ears with which to hear you speaking to us through your word. And we pray this in your name, O oh Jesus. Amen. Researchers have discovered that there are some birds that can sense when a storm is coming and because of what they then discern will take off and, and flight and get away, get away from this storm. So I believe it was April 2014, I believe it was in East Tennessee, researchers were observing the behavior patterns of these golden-winged warblers. And what was interesting was that these little warblers, little itty-bitty guys, uh, were taking off from their nesting areas in, in mat, well, in flocks, I guess you would say, in, in mass, at least two days, one to two days before the storm actually arrived. This is quite a storm, by the way. It, it spawned, uh, I think, yeah, 84 tornadoes, 35 deaths out there in East Tennessee. But again, these birds knew one to two days ahead of time that the storm was coming, and so they were gone by the time it got there. Now, what's interesting is that when they left, next to nothing had changed in that region of Tennessee in terms of barometric pressure, wind speed, or air temperature. And so the question is, how in the world did these birds know that this storm was coming? They didn't have weather channel up in those nests. No one was shaking the tree saying, go away, go away, go away. How did they know? The, the, the theory is perhaps that at least this species, if not others, can hear, can sense, can perceive sound waves that humans cannot. It's referred to as infrasounds. And perhaps, that's the theory, that's perhaps how these little golden-winged warblers knew it was time to, to go. What do we learn from this? What, is, what ought this to teach us? Well, for starters, for starters, the design of this creation and therein evidence of a designer, the complexity of this creation and therein the evidence and testimony of the creator himself. That would be point one. But point two is this. Assurance of a coming event demands a response. Assurance of a coming event demands a response. We ought to take our cues from these little birds. Now, Jesus tells this story here in Matthew 25. It's oftentimes referred to as the, the parable of the ten virgins or the bridesmaids, depending on how you want to run with that. Here's the context of the story, just to kind of bring you up to speed in case you've forgotten so it's Jesus, he's speaking to his disciples. It's Holy Week, the week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Quite a lot of drama, to say the least, in what's going on there. They're on the Mount of Olives. They're just east of the city, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. This is in the midst of a, of, of a long, extended teaching that Jesus is giving to them, and, and by extension to us, on what it means for him to be coming again and what it means for us in terms of our response, uh, both in terms of our perspective and, and our behavior 
regarding his, his coming. This is one of a series of parables. So it's not just teaching that he's doing, like in terms of just didactic teaching, but he's also giving, telling stories to help hook the listener in understanding the teaching that he, you know, just preceded that. This is one of a series of parables that Jesus is teaching in this context on his coming, his return, which kind of clues you in that perhaps this is a priority, that maybe he's really serious, like he's ever like joking, but he's really actually serious about his disciples getting this, and perhaps us as well, perhaps us as well. I said it's one of a series of, of stories. If you go back into Matthew 24, you, you'll see uh, a mention of a, a quick, two quick little stories regarding um, people in a field, workers, uh, ladies at, at, at a mill. Uh, you also have um, a, a homeowner who uh, is, needs to deal with a thief and is surprised by the thief. Now, Jesus, the intention behind that seems to be he's speaking to those who, you know, his return's just not even on their radar at all. That's just not a priority, not a thing. They're not even aware of, of, of that. He moves on and, and tells this story of these servants. Uh, he describes as being good and wicked. Not the same, but two different groups. And, and he seems to be intending for the listeners to understand it, that for some, his coming will come a whole lot sooner than they think. But then you get to this story, the story of... The, uh, this wedding feast and uh, these bridesmaids. And for others, while for some his return will seem to be coming a whole lot sooner than they think, for others it will seem to be coming much later than they think. What do you make of all, all of this? Well, at least this much. Jesus has assured us of his return. Just lock down on that. Jesus has assured us of his return, and he wants us to live in light of that reality. Jesus has assured us of his return, and we need to live in light of that reality. Now, what would that look like? What would it mean to live in light of that reality? This parable points us to at least three points. They're in your outline. And just a quick aside, as far as how to interpret, understand, dig into the, these parables, basically what you need to do is discern who are the main characters in these stories. And once you've got locked down on who the main characters are, therein you know what the main points are. Doing that in this parable takes you to three points. Three different things that Jesus is clearly driving at, wants us to understand what it means to live in light of his return. One is patience. Patience. The second thing is preparation. And the third is all of this without presumption. Patience, preparation, Without presumption. Let's look at these in turn. So first, the, the patience. We get this by looking at the bridegroom and thinking of his place in, in the story. Now, we need to understand some of the, 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 what the, the metaphors are that are going on here, the analogies, the imagery. Jesus is tapping into ordinary experiences for his hearers. They, they know exactly what he's talking about. Customs have changed. Weddings are a whole lot different today than they were back then, especially in that first century Jewish context. So what were some of the customs that we need to be aware of so we can understand what's going on here in this story. A Jewish wedding was a three-stage affair. One, you have what's referred to as the betrothal. That's kind of like the closest thing we have today to this is an engagement, 
but it's a whole lot different than even that. A betrothal uh, was a, a legal binding arrangement whereby the uh, authority and responsibility of the, of the bride's father's household is transferred over to her prospective husband's. As I said, it's a legal arrangement. A bride price is paid, and it has teeth to it. It's a, whole lot, it's a lot larger, of course, than an engagement today. That's the first stage. The second stage, and it's, this is not referred to in the New Testament, but we have extra biblical evidence that clearly says this is something else that was going on, and that was the drafting of what was referred to as a marriage certificate. And that was, again, a legal binding arrangement between this prospective bride and this prospective groom such that if in, in the event of divorce or the death of the husband, this woman could be financially provided for. The preparation of a marriage certificate. That was the second stage. The third stage, which is really what's going on here, uh, that is the marriage ceremony itself and the celebration, part of which included the preparations that the bride grows goes through on the day of the wedding celebration and the ceremony. That's, you see that very clearly here in the story. And then not just the preparations, but the procession, a procession that took place always at night with the bridal party, if you will, proceeding to from the, 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 the bride's home to the groom's home by torchlight. Okay? That's the custom. That's what's going on here behind this story and what everyone that's hearing Jesus tell this story understands that we've got to get in those sandals if we're going to understand what's going on here. The bridegroom, if you will, is the man of the hour, okay? And he has a lot of responsibility on him, a lot of arrangements that need to be made. It wasn't terribly uncommon for him to be delayed. I mean, you don't have watches in those days. You don't have... Uh, text messaging and the ability to one set a time as here's when I'm going to be there and if I'm late I'll let you know. So the experience of delay was not uncommon either. Okay, again Jesus is tapping into some common experience surrounding the Jewish customs of a wedding and in those days. The analogy though, where is he taking us with this? What is his? What's the meaning? What's the intent? What are we supposed to discern from all this? Jesus is saying I'm the bridegroom. In this story, I'm the bridegroom. Now, there's a shock value in here. If you're a Jewish person and you're hearing this, you, 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 you're soaked in this. We were as alluded to in the text we read from Isaiah just a little while ago. In the Old Testament, the prophets of old often referred to, because God himself referred to him in this way, as the husband of his people. And Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. And this is hardly the first time that he has either implicitly or explicitly referred to himself in this way. But lest we uh, fail to hear this, we need to let the, the shock value of that, that he is equating the God of Israel, Yahweh, he's saying, that's me. That's me. That's the first thing. That's me, and there's a delay in my coming. There will be a delay in my coming. Not because there are outside forces at work that keep me from getting there when I want to. It's not like Jesus is going to get caught in traffic. It's not like me, you know, he gets out, you know, a mile down the road and forgets his wallet and has to turn around and go back. It's not, the, it's not outside forces at all that are constraining Jesus in some way to be delayed. That's not the idea. It's that 
subjectively, our experience of his return is he's been delayed because we're waiting so long. We're having to wait so long. That's what he's speaking of here. And so what the, the idea being he may delay his coming longer than we expect, which therein demands patience. Now, what would that mean for us today? And as, as long as between this point and when he returns, what, what does it mean for us to, to live patiently? Well, let's look at the opposite. What would impatience look like? Perhaps if we can do a study in contrast here for a moment, that might help. What, how would a spirit of impatience manifest itself? Impatience with the return of our Lord. Let me give you two examples. One would be taking things into our own hands. We're tired of waiting. Taking things into our own hands. Believing that we need something that he has not provided, and therefore we're going to do what's necessary to take it. Here's some examples. A spouse. financial break, a better grade, um, a change in the heart of a person you care for, and you're tired of waiting. He's not coming through. You're going to take things in your own hands. That is born of a spirit of impatience and discontentment with his dealings with you. That's one way taking things in your own hands. Another is just giving up. I'm just tired of waiting. I'm done. I'm chafed, you know. The cost of discipleship, the cost-benefit analysis of discipleship is too much for me. Uh, it's going on too long. It's too hard. It's too much work. It's too much sacrifice. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm done. Jesus is saying, he is assuring us. He's assuring us of his return. We need to live in light of that reality. He's assuring us of his return. We need to live in light of that reality. That therein demands patience. That's the first point. The second thing, though, is this, being prepared. Being prepared. We see that with these five wise virgins. Five wise virgins. Um, again, getting into the customs of, of the time and some things worth understanding here just uh, quickly. Uh, there they are, right? There's the ten of them there together waiting at the bride's house. There they all, all are waiting for this, uh, this bridal procession to, to begin uh, the, as they would move at night by torchlight to the home of the groom once he is ready and has come for them. They're all there together. The difference being that the five wise bridesmaids or virgins are prepared. They bring extra oil. They, they don't know when the, bride, the bridegroom is coming they don't know when the procession is going to have to begin, so therefore they bring extra oil, and therein they are referred to as wise. Now, just a couple of quick points here. By the way, what seems like selfishness, you know, they didn't share. They didn't share their oil with, with the other five, the foolish five. Well, the reason is, just, it's just reflecting the reality. Had they done so, I mean, just, there wasn't enough to go around. If they had done that, it would have ruined the procession utterly ruined. There would have been no procession and torches lit at that point. So don't take your cue from that, the license for selfishness. Uh, another thing is, I don't know if you thought about this, but did you note that uh, they are not rebuked in any way for falling asleep? They all fell asleep. 
The point is, is not, and in, in the way that Jesus says, watch therefore, there in verse 13, is not, it does not mean literally staying awake. Now, I know, you know, if you're going to be a sentry, you better stay awake, but this is not sentry duty. In this context, staying awake meant being ready, being prepared for whenever he comes. Being ready, being prepared for whenever he comes, which, of course, they were which is why they're described here as being wise. Well, what's the point? What does Jesus have us, what would he have us to understand here? The wise, these wise, the five wise bridesmaids, virgins, he wants us to understand as being Jesus' true followers, truly his disciples who are waiting, who are watching, who are ready, who are longing for his return. And this is a point that is, is repeatedly made that wisdom, he equates wisdom in this way with being prepared, even in the face of his delay. Uh, it is repeated, in fact, just going back to chapter 24, it's something that, that's said several times, and then he expands on it here in this parable. If you go back to verses 48 through 50, but if that wicked, this is halfway in the middle of, of uh, one of these, these stories, if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know. And then going further back to verse 42, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Or verse 44, therefore you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, the idea here is that wisdom takes into account the reality, the of his delay, the possibility of his delay, and therein being prepared. Again, we need to ask, what do do we do with this? What what does it mean for us to be ready? What does it mean for us to be prepared? Well, I've got to be honest with you, there's no simple answer to that. There's no simple answer here for two reasons. One, it's just not Jesus' way of teaching. Jesus doesn't just do the simple answer, rarely so. Um, As much as I would like, and I know you would probably like him to just say, well, you know, here's five easy easy steps towards being prepared for my return. And if you buy my book and look on page chapter 64 of Discipleship for Dummies, you'll find it, those those five. But Jesus doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way that way, not in that simplistic way. That's one reason why it's not a simple answer, but another is it, it, there's, it, it's this, this being prepared, being ready for his return is there's not a single thing you do. It's not like a checklist you go through and say, oh, I did that, so now I'm ready. It's not like, you know, preparing for guests that might be coming this week and you, you know, wash the sheets and I don't know what else, you know, got bought in my food. You can check that off, right, of your list of things to do, and now you're ready. It's not like that. It's a way of living. It's not a single thing you do that you check off on a list. It's a way of living. Preaching the gospel to yourself daily, which demands spending time with him in the word and prayer daily. It means gathering regularly with his people, as we are here this this morning, but not just that, through the week. Through the week, recognizing that these are ways that he prepares us for his coming. These are ways that he readied us 
for his coming. These are the ways that he helps us watch and be alert for his, his coming. He has assured us of his return. We need to live in light of that reality. That's the second thing. But all of that, so we have the, the call to patience, the call to prepare, and then the warning to do all of that without presumption. And that's the third point. We see this with these five foolish virgins, bridesmaids here. And again, the, the imagery is, is worth delving into just a little bit. Again, all ten are there together, right? And it looks like they're all the same. There's, there's no real difference between them. There they are, those ten with the bride, waiting for the bridegroom to come, waiting for the signal. And everything looks the same until that moment. Until that moment when the cry goes out, he's here. Then the distinction is, is very clear between the wise and the foolish. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight... There was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. They weren't ready. They weren't prepared. Why? Because of their presumption. Because they were presuming. They were presuming that he wouldn't be long. They were presuming that they had enough oil. They were presuming that there were little to no preparations to be made. Now, understanding us is true now, but especially true in that context, it was an honor to be invited to a wedding. A real honor. And it was an insult to show up unprepared. It's a slap in the face which helps us to understand what's going on at the end of the story. Let me pick up where in verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now, obviously, he knew them in the sense that he knew their name. They were acquaintances. It's not in that sense, but it's in a deeper sense. It's in a relational sense. It's a, a sense in which... They so trivialize that relationship and that bond between them, the bride, and the groom that they invested nothing in it. And there was no reality to it. It was just all talk. It was all talk. They were masquerading as bridesmaids. They were there, but never truly there. And this is a warning to us. This is a real warning to us. Two things. Some things do not transfer. Some things do not transfer. There are some things you cannot borrow. You have to own for yourself. You have to own them for yourself. Heart's embrace of the gospel. Understanding of your need of being freed and forgiven of your sin. A heart's embrace of the king and the kingdom. Some things do not transfer. Some things cannot be borrowed. They must be possessed. That's thing one. Thing two. There will come a time when it's simply too late. 
There will come a time when it is simply too late. That which you've been putting off and putting off and putting off and putting off eventually goes by. And the opportunity is gone. The exam was this morning. The job has been lost. The children have grown and moved out. The marriage is over. There comes a time when it is simply too late. What Jesus is putting before us is there's going to come a time when his arriving, his return, will have synced with the calendar. He will be here. He will have returned. And at that point in time and space and history, it will therein be too late. It will be too late. So we dare not live the lie of presuming otherwise. We dare not live the lie of presuming otherwise. Jesus is warning to do so does irreparable damage to your soul. That presuming now and forever. Irreparable damage to your soul because anyone who comes to him masquerading as one of his own, for them there will be irreversible judgment. That's what the parable is driving at. Irreparable damage, irreversible judgment. It's what he's telling us here. Now, let me be clear. In no way is he saying there's not a place for doubts. You're struggling, it's okay. You're in a safe place. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying there's no room for your questions. You're struggling, you're wrestling with things, trying to understand the nuances of the Christian faith. You're in a good place. You're in a good place. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about doubts. He's not talking about questions. He's talking about those who would masquerade as his own, who would pretend and would presume, especially in light of his shortcoming. That's what he's warning us about. He has assured us of his return. We need to live in light of that. Reality, as I said earlier, the assurance of a coming event demands a response, a change in our perspective, a change in our behavior. Project yourself into this scenario, okay? You're a prisoner of war. You and your fellow POWs have lived for some time behind the wire, behind this fence, in the barracks. You have no idea how the war is going. You've long since lost contact with the, with the outside world. You have no, no way of getting any news in. And what little you have is propaganda. However, in recent weeks, you can see that the guards are getting nervous. And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your comrades in arms will not settle for you being abandoned, forgotten, or left behind. And with that... With all of that, every night you hear explosions in the distance. And every night they're getting closer and closer and closer. The allies are coming. 
what would that do to life in the camp for the POWs? What does that do? What, what, what would that do? Well, despair would give way to hope. Fear would be displaced by courage. Days of drudgery would be transformed into a life of anticipation. Why? Because you know what's coming and who. You know what's coming and who. My friends, this story is about the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and the return of the king. That's what this story is about. He's come once, he's coming again. Now, it may seem like a long time in coming, but as is the case with everything he does, it is done according to his wisdom and goodness and love. We have but to hold on, to be prepared, to be ready, to be waiting. He has assured us of his return. We need to live in light of that reality. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, those of us who would call ourselves your disciples, your followers, oh, would you help us to live in light of your appearing? When God came down the first time that we look back upon and the second time that we look forward to, both equally true. One has already happened and shaken the world to its roots, and the other is yet to come, but just as surely it will. Jesus, we confess here that our sight on these things is so distorted. We see, we see as though this was not real, that this really was just a story, a story about a story, not a story about reality. We see as though this was not even true or worse, true but irrelevant. We suffer from such spiritual astigmatism, nearsightedness. Please give us sight. Lord, we want to see. We want to see. Help us to live in light of your appearing. Give us the patience. Help us prepare and protect our hearts from any, any, any presuming. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We're now going to move towards uh, continuing in our service of worship, but moving towards